but uh, we'll just hit the high spots, the organization of it, and basically what it contains. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful. You've given us so much. You've blessed us with health. You've given us food and shelter and clothing. We almost don't need to ask for our daily bread the way the ancients did. We have a freezer full. Help us, Father, to be grateful. And I pray that you will speak through your word tonight, that you will send your spirit to our study, to our discussion afterwards, that you'll send your spirit, not just here, but to our country, that you'll be with our leaders, especially in this summit tomorrow. I pray, Father, that you'll be present at that meeting and that somehow Kim Jong-un will know who you are, the only true God and your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent. We pray that honor and glory will come to you through us, this study, and through our nation. And our leaders, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Acts is the second volume of Luke's writing. Luke wrote book one, the gospel, and uh, points out that he is not an eyewitness, but that he is a historian who interviews people to find out what to put in this gospel. Probably interviewed Mary, the mother of Jesus. May have interviewed several of the of the apostles, and then he traveled with the apostle Paul. And uh, when he comes to Acts, he writes it to the same person you can see at the very beginning here. In my former book, O Theophilus, I wrote about what Jesus began to do and teach, until the day he was taken up into heaven. And so he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit for the disciples to wait in Jerusalem. Remember, he had he had uh, died on a Friday, been raised on a Sunday, and then... 38 more days passed, 37 more days passed. And Jesus was alive on earth for 40 days. And then he ascended, and then seven more days, the three, the 40, and the seven, makes 50 days, and that's Passover. Passover is 50 days after, uh, I'm sorry, Passover is 50 days before Pentecost. And so Pentecost is the 50th day after Passover. 50 is the number for the Holy Spirit throughout the Scriptures. And uh, here, very obviously, uh, the Holy Spirit comes on the church 50 days after 
the sacrifice of Jesus. And so here in chapter 2 of Acts is where that happens. But chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus gives an outline to how the gospel is going to spread. If you look at verse 8, you'll see that it says, In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the farthest parts of the earth. In other words, it's going to start out here, small, then it's going to grow and grow and grow. And it's extremely significant that it started in Jerusalem because that's where everybody saw Jesus die. And here now they're preaching the resurrection right there. And so the first fourth of the book, there are four sections in the book, Hmm. Maka. Um, we had a black marker here. I don't know what happened to it. But there are four sections to the book. I can just give you the verses and you can take a look at it. Uh, chapter 6, verse 7 is the first division. Thank you. Chapter 6, verse 7 is the first division in the book of Acts. And if you read there, you'll see that it says the word of God grew and multiplied and many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So what you have up to this point is Jews only. Up, up through chapter 6 verse 7. Immediately after this, chapter 7, Stephen's sermon, he is Stoned to death, persecution begins, and people are scattered everywhere. Now, Jesus had told the apostles, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. But they had just stayed there in Jerusalem for almost 15 years. And so God put pressure on them by persecution. Persecution begins in chapter 7 and continues into chapter 8. And so the second group is dealt with, and that is chapter 8, when Philip goes down into Samaria and preaches the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, these are the first non-Jews to hear the gospel. So these are Samaritans. Samaritans are actually half-breed Jews. The Jews went into captivity in Babylon, and uh, many of them intermarried with other nations. And when they did that, they became unacceptable to the, to the mainline Jews. And so the Samaritans were formed. And in, when the Samaritans came back, they wanted to join with the Jews. They were half-breed Jews, so they wanted to join with the Jews. But the Jews wouldn't let them do it. And uh, they separated themselves from the Samaritans. So the Samaritans, in 444 B.C., took the Torah, made a couple of minor changes in it to make it appear that they are the chosen people. When I was in what used to be called the city of Sychar, remember the woman at the well? The story in John 4, 
the well of Jacob who had, that had been there for almost 2,000 years when Jesus visited the well. That well's still there. We were there. We went down into the well. The mountains have flowed down into the valleys. This is what happens over time. And so you have to go down 12 steps to get to the surface of this well. And you have to drop a bucket about 75 feet down into the, to get to the artesian water down below. And the water's still good to drink. But the city of Sychar today is called Oscar. It's right next to the well, right down, a little bit farther down into the valley. And that's where Jesus stayed for a couple of days, and the uh, Samaritans came to believe in him. Because of the woman who had told them about him. Well, the city of Oscar is still there, and when I was there, I got up in the evening, it's about time sun sets, which is the time of sacrifice. And there were several Samaritans leading an animal up Mount Ebal, pretty big mountain there, and on top of that mountain was a big uh, altar. And they were still practicing Samaritans, still practicing the 444 B.C. Torah that they uh, had taken away from the Jews, which is pretty amazing. I mean, you think about something lasting that long, 2,000 years. There were only about eight or ten, and I asked our guide about it. He was, a, he was an Arab, and he knew that there were probably about 120 total Samaritans that still followed the Samaritan Pentateuch, the, the Samaritan Torah. So, Samaritans, and then uh, God-fearing Gentiles. The Samaritans and the God-fearing Gentiles are considered the same by the Jews. So that's the second division in the book. First division, Jews only. Second division, Samaritans and God-fearing Gentiles. The next one is 1224. The next division. This is Luke's outline to the book. Again, it says the same thing. The Word of God grew and multiplied. And so you've got grew and multiplied means the people grew in their knowledge of the Word. But multiplied means the numbers began to come in. And that's what it said in both of these verses. 6, 7, 12, 24. Now... It's talking to ignorant Gentiles. That is, Gentiles ignorant of God. Okay? Jews only is first. Up through 6 7. And then persecution begins. And the gospel spreads to the Samaritans and the God-fearing Gentiles. The Samaritans, Philip took that. Now Philip is the guy, one of the, one of the seven deacons that were chosen at the beginning here of chapter six in Genesis. You remember that the widows that spoke Greek among the Jews were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And so they appointed seven elders. Uh, deacons, they should be called, 
because they did the work of diaconia, according to the text. So there were seven deacons that took care of all the thousands of people that were sitting around the table making sure everyone got waited on. So Philip, who was one of those deacons, is now an evangelist who goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel, and he baptizes the people. They receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but they have no proof of the Holy Spirit. There's no miracle. So they let the disciples know, the the apostles know in Jerusalem, and Peter and John went to Samaria, and they laid hands on the people, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and the miracle came then. See, they had the Spirit, but they didn't have proof. So the apostles gave them proof. If you look at the New Testament carefully, you'll see that the miraculous gifts of the Spirit are passed on by the laying on of the apostles' hands. Okay. Yeah. He was doing great miracles, but nobody else got the miracle of the of tongue speaking or prophecy or gift of service or you know all the gifts there are nine gifts in 1 Corinthians that are listed and nobody got those spiritual gifts uh, at that point. Yeah, so John and Peter go down and lay hands on them. Uh, when Paul writes to the Romans in Romans 1.11, he says, I long to visit you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, supernatural gift. In other words, the Romans hadn't had an apostle there yet. And they didn't have the supernatural gifts. The gifts he lists in Romans 12.3 through 8 are seven gifts like we have. You know, gift of teaching, uh, gift of service, Gift of ruling, gift of leading, things like that. So, 1224 divides, here's the first division, here's the second division. 1224 gives us a third division. The Word of God grew and multiplied. And here you have people who are idolaters. Idol worshipers who are ignorant of God. And Paul went into several cities with Silas. And in one case, Paul did a miracle, and they thought that, uh, and, uh, bless you. And Barnabas, who was with Paul, no, yeah, Barnabas, the first, in the first missionary journey, Barnabas, who was with Paul, was doing the preaching. And Paul was doing miracles. And so the people in the town decided they were going to offer sacrifice thinking that they were two gods, that Paul was Zeus and uh, and uh, Barnabas was Apollos, the messenger of the gods. And they just barely kept them from offering sacrifice in their honor. They rushed into the crowd and tore their clothing and said, Men, don't do this. We're people just like yourselves. And then they preached the gospel, this in uh, Acts 14, and a whole bunch of these people who were idolaters came to Christ. And then they had a great big book burning where they took all their witchcraft books and destroyed them. 
And there are other places in Scripture where similar things happen. So the ignorant of God hear the message all the way down to 1920. And you have the same kind of verse again. The Word of God grew and prevailed mightily. And what happened right after that? The very next verse, the Apostle Paul says, I must go to Rome. So the gospel, Jews only, God-fearing Gentiles, ignorant of God, Gentiles, uh, idol worshipers, and then Rome. The gospel goes to Rome. And the rest of the book of Acts is the story of Paul's incredible journey. Have you read that? You know, there was a guy who didn't believe Acts. His name was Sir William Ramsey, a British scholar. And he said, I think it's all uh, fabrication. I think the book of Acts is made up. And so he decided to make the journeys that Paul made in the book of Acts. He ended up being converted after a couple of years. He ended up writing a book entitled The Cities of St. Paul because he visited all these cities. And most of them are still there, still thriving. So Paul goes to Rome, and the last part of the book is this long journey on this little boat, not a ship. A ship is a 100 feet or bigger, but they didn't have those. They had little boats back then. And uh, so they're making a trip on a boat. How did he get to Rome? He was in Jerusalem, and the Jews were trying to kill him. So as a Roman citizen, he has a right to appeal to Caesar. By appeal, I mean appear in court before Caesar. And so to save his life, he appeals to Caesar, and the Roman garrison is given the requirement of taking him to appear before Nero. And so Paul makes this long, arduous journey. When he gets to Rome at the end of the of the book of Acts, he is chained to Roman soldiers in a private house, and he is allowed to have visitors. And Jews come, and Gentiles come, and he teaches them, and the Jews end up arguing. And you can read the last part of the book of Acts, the very last part. Paul quotes Isaiah 6, Adam. The Jews are leaving, arguing, and Paul says, Well did Isaiah say of you, you hear and hear and don't understand. You see and see and you don't perceive. Your hearts are heavy. Your eyes are smeared shut. You don't get it. And uh, But the Gentiles will. And the last word in the book of Acts, now the book of Acts is incomplete. The Jews would call it an Agadah. It's, it's something added to the gospel that is not really complete. He finishes by saying the word of God is spreading unhinderedly is the last word in the Greek text. Unhinderedly. So nothing's stopping the word. So Paul, the book of Acts ends with Paul in jail, in a private house. Later he appears before Nero. He preaches the gospel to Nero. Nero thinks he's just a strange Jew. He lets him go. He makes a fourth missionary journey not in the book of Acts, where he drops Timothy off at Ephesus 
That's in uh, western Turkey. And then he drops Titus off at the island of Crete, which is one of the most difficult uh, missionary areas. And then he makes a trip all the way to Spain by ship and preaches through Spain. If you've ever been there, you know all the old mainline churches are the Church of St. Paul, every one of them. And then he came all the way back across Europe overland, ended up in Macedonia north of Greece. It's about a thousand-mile trip. And in Macedonia, in the city of Neapolis, he is arrested a second time. And by this time, Christianity is religio illicita, an illegal religion. And so this time, he's not put in private house arrest. He's taken to Rome and thrown in the Mamertine Dungeon in downtown Rome. You know the word dungeon in English comes from the word dung. It's a filthy, rat-infested place. And that's where Paul is when he writes Second Timothy, the last book he wrote. He asked Timothy, please bring my woolen cloak. Please get to me before winter. But the early church has no record of Timothy making that trip in time. Because Paul was taken out on the, on the Ostian way, east of Rome. Forced onto his knees, put his head on a chopping block. <coughs> head falls off. Uh, that was the end of Paul. Peter and Paul both were martyred just outside of Rome. Peter on the Appian Way, west of Rome, and Paul on the Ostian Way, east of Rome. And they are spoken of in a book called First Clement, written about 90 to 95, about the time John wrote. Uh, Clement describes their martyrdom. Uh, Peter was to be crucified, and he told the Roman soldiers, I considered an honor to die the way my Lord did. And they said, well, well, we'll fix that. So they turned him upside down, crucified him upside down. No respect at all for that old man. And he died. And then Paul, of course, was beheaded, much quicker death. So the book of Acts ends unending. And uh, the word of God is spreading all over the world. And Paul makes a fourth journey that's not recorded anywhere in the book of Acts, but it is recorded in the early fathers of the church. Uh, Clement, that same guy, says that Paul made the trip all the way to the west, and that means Spain. So, the book of Acts is the history of the spread of the church. It's not a, it's not a doctrine book, though a lot of people use it as a doctrine book. It's a history book. It's a book about precedent. What should we be doing? And the book of Acts pretty much reveals what the early church did, and that's the types of things we should be doing. You know, reaching out to others, helping others, serving others. Biblical word agape, the definition of it is helping people. It's very simple. Agape is not how you feel. Agape is what you do to help people. Okay, any questions on Acts? It's kind of a shotgun. I mean, we got we got 26 chapters here. 28 chapters. 28 chapters in about, what, 10 minutes? 
well, 15 minutes. So after Acts comes the greatest book in the New Testament, in my opinion, the book of Romans. If we're going to talk about the book of Romans, we have to have an outline because it's 16 loaded chapters. And if I were to describe it, I would say this. If the Apostle Paul ever wrote a doctoral dissertation, the book of Romans is it. Now, he didn't actually write the book. It's kind of like Peter uh, writing First Peter. He didn't write First Peter. Uh, Silas wrote First Peter. Peter was the one who spoke, but Silas was the one who wrote. And here, Paul is the one who spoke, but Tertius, if you go to the 16th chapter, you find his name, T-I-R, or T-E-R, T-I-U-S, is the actual writer of the book of Romans. And I think Paul and Tertius, probably over the winter of about 54 or 55 A.D., I think Paul and Tertius handed this book back and forth and back and forth and discussed what they wanted to say in it. And it basically expresses Paul's entire mind on what it is to be a person in Christ. And so here's a three-point outline, the only simple outline I've ever found. Uh, the sin of man... But the grace of God, therefore, the Christian life. This is the logic symbol for therefore. And X is uh, the first initial of Christ's name in Greek, Christos, the He, the letter He, and so they use that for Christ in the manuscripts. So the sin of man, but the grace of God, therefore the Christian life. That's the outline, and here's the division. You got the intro, 1, 1 through 17 including the theme statement, I'll come back to that. And then you got the sin of man, 118 through 320, but the grace of God, 321 through 839, and then the Christian life, 121 through 1514. And then there's a conclusion. The sin of man. Well, let me go back to the theme first. Let me talk about that. The theme is this. The righteous, by faith, shall live. The righteous, RTS is abbreviation, by faith shall live. By faith is in the middle in both Greek and Hebrew. But for some reason, the editors, when they translate it, they translate it, the righteous will live by faith. 
And they miss the point of having it in the middle. Because when it's in the middle, faith gives us righteousness. As soon as you believe, you're counted righteous by God. And then faith gives us life. Our lives begin to come into harmony with what we believe. And so both of these things, righteousness and life, come from faith. Faith also can be translated faithfulness. In fact, the word that's used uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's our word amen on the end of our prayers. It means something that's faithful. It's a true saying, truth. So the righteous by truth shall live, could be translated. The righteous by faithfulness. What do we mean when we say somebody is a faithful husband? You know what it is. He's committed to his wife. He is truthful. And he keeps faith with her. Uh, a faithful church member, somebody that's there, you can count on them. Like some of you folks in this room. Um, the righteous by their faithfulness shall live. And this is a quotation from Habakkuk, the prophet. Habakkuk 2.4b, the last half of a verse. He says, The proud is puffed up in the deceit of his heart, but the righteous by faith shall live. And that's also what the book of Galatians is based on. This is what Martin Luther discovered. They ended up ripping half away, half of Catholicism away. He discovered that the righteous by faith shall live, not by works, the way the Catholic Church was drumming it into the people and nobody could be good enough, but by faith. And that's why he put the 95 theses on the door, the Wittenberg door, because he was angry with the church and wanted to, wanted to get them to repent and change back. But, of course, they didn't. So what is the sin of man? Well, Paul says in this first chapter, he's talking about the Gentiles here. One eighteen and following. One eighteen says the wrath of God is being revealed from the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Did you catch that? The wrath of God is being revealed, present tense, against the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth in their wickedness. Now, he's not saying the wrath of God is against people. He's saying the wrath of God is against wickedness and godlessness and the behavior of evil people. And so from that point on, he shows that everybody in the world knows about righteousness. Everybody in the world knows about God. Jesus says the same thing in John 16. He says the Holy Spirit's job is to teach the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. In other words, everybody out there knows they're a sinner. Everybody out there knows there's such a thing as righteousness somewhere. Otherwise, you wouldn't know you were a sinner. You know, how would you know you were wrong if there wasn't a right? 
And then the last thing is everybody knows there's a judgment. I mean, I knew before I was a Christian. I can remember knowing and rejecting, knowingly denying the truth. I knew I was a sinner. I knew righteousness was available. And I knew there was coming a judgment. And I just went headlong into doing evil. And God got a hold of me anyway. So the Gentiles know God. In fact, Paul says, what they, what can be known about God is plain to them. Read that first chapter. You'll see it. Everybody knows. You know, people who deny God, like the atheist society, why would they spend half their life fighting against something that doesn't exist? I mean, it's obvious that they believe in God, and so they reject it intentionally, knowingly rejecting God. So Gentiles know God, Paul says, but they do not honor Him as God. They do not give thanks to Him as God, but instead they pervert their 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 uh, worship, turn away from the living God to images of birds or animals or reptiles or even a man. And that's what they worship. And so Paul says three times, God gave them up. He gave them up in immorality. He gave them over to homosexuality. He gave them over to a reprobate mind, a base mind. A mind that has been burned out and shown to be worthless. And that's how this first chapter ends. God gave him up. You know, God's a gentleman. He's not going to come into somebody's life and force them to obey. He's not going to make them believe. He presents the truth. They know the truth. And they choose. And those who choose to deny the truth are... Uh, they're in grave danger. And you read on in chapter 2 and, and the first part of 3 down through uh, 320, and you'll see that all mankind, Jews, Gentiles, everyone, is shut up and under sin. That all of us are without excuse. And look at, turn to, in your Bibles to Romans 3. Start in verse 10. What Paul does here is he's eclectic. He picks passages out of here and there and around in the Old Testament and strings them all together. Psalms, Isaiah, the other prophets, the law. He says, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. Those are continuing action verbs. I-N-G. No one who keeps on seeking God. All, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. 
Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. See, that's a condemnation of the entire human race. Not one person is righteous. Isn't that amazing? You'd think out of all the millions and billions of people that have lived, somebody would be righteous, but only Jesus, nobody else. Not even John, you know, the good apostle. He says, Jesus is the forgiveness for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Our sins, he includes himself. You know, we have an advocate with the Father, he says. So the conclusion is in verse 19 and 20, you can't be good enough because you've all sinned. And now he goes into the second part, but the grace of God. I love this part. But the grace of God, 3, 22 through 24. I want, I want you to look at that passage. I'll, I'm going to try to give it to you out of the Greek text. I'll start with where it says there is no difference. Okay, that means there's no difference between Jew and Gentile, no difference between you and me, no difference between male and female, no difference between Greeks and Jews and Romans. It doesn't matter. None of it matters. There's no difference. For all have sinned. Past tense. It's all completed. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. Once you've sinned, you're always falling short of the glory of God. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God and are being justified freely by faith. Think about that. All, only God can say all, all have sinned, are falling short, are being justified at the same time by what Jesus did, by our faith. And those who don't have faith in what Jesus did, those who don't know about Jesus, there may be some way in which the sacrifice of Jesus reaches even to them who don't know, who try to do what's right. Paul talks about this in chapter 2 of Romans. That they, they have the law written on their hearts. And they try to live by their conscience. And their conscience sometimes accuses them and sometimes excuses them. And Paul says, God will judge all those people by my gospel. And so here we are under the grace of God. All have sinned. I'm going to put that up here. All are being, are falling short. I spoke on this one time in uh, West Texas, and a guy got up afterwards and said, Father, forgive us of our falling shorts. And I, and I, I went <laughs> and looked up, and everybody else was, <laughs> you know. I, I wanted to laugh. The best one I ever heard was, uh, well, there were two others. One of them was... Uh, and, when I was in school at Lincoln, uh, the women's dorm was called Harmony Hall, and the men's dorm was called Timothy Hall. We called it Timothy Hole, 
but uh, one of the guys in our devotions prayed that we might all live in harmony, and that kind of <laughs> that kind of broke up <laughs> that kind of broke up the the thing. But then I was in Plano, Texas, in a church there, Plano, Texas. You know where all the Plano Texans are. You know about that place. <coughs> it's a good place. It's a great city. Anyway, there was a guy in the church that came up and took up the offering, and they gave him all the plates, and he went up front, and he was supposed to say a prayer. So he said, well, Father, forgive us of our many blessings, and thank you for our sins. Amen. And you could hear people kind of laughing around the community, and I said, uh, I got up in the pulpit and said, Dave, did you mean what you said? And he said, I was hoping no one would notice. And I said, well, I'm just glad you didn't start naming specific sins you were most thankful for. <laughs> Sin, falling short, and then look at this, being justified. Those are the forms of the verbs. Even in the midst of falling short of God's glory, we are being justified by God, by what Christ did through our faith. I love that. So chapter 4, he gives us two examples. Abraham and David. Two Old Testament examples. Abraham before the law. Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God, and God counted him righteous because of his faith. That's the first time that's mentioned in the Bible, right there, Genesis 15.6. Abraham, 75 years old. He's out in the middle of the plains, the Shephelah, the high plains of uh, Palestine. And God says... Come out of the tent, Abraham. I want to show you something. He came out of the tent. God said, look at the stars. The whole Milky Way. You ever been where you can really see it? Oh, it's awesome. And he looks up, and God says, can you count them? He said, no, I can't. He said, I will give you that many offspring. And something turned over in Abraham's heart. He believed God. And God saw it and counted him righteous right there. So Abraham was accepted by God by faith before the law. In fact, about 750 years before the law. And then David, under law, broke the law. God could have discarded him, but he repented and turned back to God. And God said, he's a man after my own heart. And God accepted David on the basis of his faith, just as he had Abraham. And when he accepted Abraham, listen to this. One of my students wrote a paper on this. When Abraham was accepted by God, he was a Gentile. He was not a Jew. In fact, he was not a Jew for 24 years after that. When he was 99 years old, in Genesis 17.10, the first mention of circumcision. And he said, circumcise yourself, 
and all 318 men in your camp and all people in the future, all men, on the eighth day. Eight, the number of new beginning. Eight people on the ark, you know. So, on the eighth day. So, Genesis 17.10, Abraham's 99 years old, and he circumcises himself and all his male offspring. Probably did all 318 of them first, and then did himself. But they used flint knives. They didn't even have scalpels. It had to be extremely painful. You would think that when God said to him, I want you to circumcise your... He said, you want me to what? With what? What? You know? But he does it. And the good thing about Flint is... uh, Bacteria cannot adhere to flint. And so you can do one person after another, after another, after another, and nobody gets sick. You're miserable for about two weeks, but you don't get sick. I had a roommate that went through that. He was getting married, and the doctor told him, you need to get circumcised so you can keep your wife from getting cancer. Because when you're uncircumcised, you can't clean yourself. There's a thing called smegma that builds up on there and causes cervical cancer. It also causes penile cancer. The difference between men who are circumcised and men who are not circumcised is 500 to 1 cancer ratio. That's amazing right there. That's in the book, uh, uh, None of These Diseases, written by two medical doctors, uh, Dr. David Stern and Dr. S.I. McMillan grandfather and grandson. Great book. I recommend it. None of these diseases. God says, if you obey my word, I'll give you none of these diseases of the nations around you. Have a shovel in your equipment, and if you have to make a number two, ladies, that's poo-poo, okay? (laughs) Guys, you know what you call it. Uh, If you have to do that, you go outside the camp, dig a hole, and go in the hole and cover it up. He's the first guy to invent quarantine. He also quarantined lepers. Remember that? You know, God is the one who keeps people safe. And when Europe forgot about that rule where you go out away from the camp and do your dirty work and cover it up, they did it in the streets and they got bubonic plague and it spread everywhere. But anyway, David is the next one. He is... He breaks the law and repents and comes back to God. And that's chapter 4 in Romans. Chapter 5, I have my students memorize the first five verses. Since then you've been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we rejoice in our sufferings. Because suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us. Because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Isn't that wonderful? I love that passage. 
We are justified by faith and we have peace with God. You know what peace means? You know what shalom means? It means all your debts are paid. You don't owe God anything. Isn't that amazing? We really owe him everything, but he has canceled our debt. That's chapter 5. The last half of chapter 5, he talks about, starting in verse 12, he talks about Adam. And by Adam, sin came into the world, and death came in through sin. Now, evolutionists teach that death came millions of years ago, that the dinosaurs died out 65 million. You know, I started reading when I was three years old. My mom taught me. And I read my first book on dinosaurs, and I assumed that they died out 65 million years ago. And when I got into graduate schools, when I began looking into evolution, what's the evidence? And I looked and looked and looked, and I could not find any evidence. I talked to uh, powerful evolutionist scholars and asked them for evidence, and they couldn't give any. There is no evidence. They'd say things like the fossil record... Well, what, are, what, what about all the gaps in the fossil record? And what about the fact that the fossil record could have been laid down very quickly? You know, like, say, in a flood. Um, everything that the evolutionists teach can be answered by the creationists. And I, you know, I, I was an evolutionist by default. I had to study my way out of that. And now I think it's a total crock. I mean, that's just my personal opinion. Anyway, Adam brought sin into the world, and death came in through sin. So Adam brought death. Two animals were put to death, remember? Right after Adam and Eve sinned, and God made garments of skin for them. He had to kill those animals. He had to tell them about sacrifice. And so later... Abel and Cain come with their sacrifices. And God rejects Cain. He didn't reject Cain's sacrifice. He didn't even mention the sacrifice. He rejected Cain because Cain was an evildoer. And Cain did not believe. The New Testament makes sure we understand that. Hebrews 12 says, By faith Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain. And then over in 1 John 3, Cain was an evildoer. He was a murderer from the beginning. And so here's a guy, what was so wrong about him murdering Abel? You know, this is the beginning of the world against the church. God accepts Abel. God rejects Cain. Because Cain was evil. And God confronted him five times. And couldn't get an answer. You ever talk to somebody that's angry and they won't answer man don't do that that's a bad way to behave that's destructive when you're angry express your anger you know try to do it kindly uh, but you know there are people who uh, just clam up and that's what he did he said uh, you know God said uh, where's your brother Abel you know he said first he said uh, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? No answer. You know, everything he said, there were four questions in a row. Cain wouldn't answer. And finally, when he asked him, where's your brother Abel? 
He said, am I my brother's keeper? You know, that's right out of the mouth of hell. The whole rest of Scripture tells us, yes, you are your brother's keeper. So anyway, Cain, the difference between Cain and Abel is the difference between you know, the evil people of the world who hate the church and the church. One of the things my wife and I have prayed for for over 30 years is that God will send dreams and visions to unbelievers, especially to those who would harm God's people. You may not know this, but in this century, there will be more martyrs for Christ than in all previous 20 centuries combined. Christians are dying by the hundreds of thousands. The church is growing at a rate of 80,000 people per hour. That was back in 2011. It's probably going faster than that now. Two million people a day back then. Churches exploding around the world. Not here. Here it's... Churches are going down. One or two percent every year. Tragic. So there are two kinds of people, he says here. Those who live according to the flesh, Adam. Those who live according to the Spirit, Jesus. And then chapter 6, how do you get into Jesus? How would you get in? There are two ways. You believe into Christ, and you are baptized into Christ. And that's two is a number of a fact, if you remember that. You're in Christ because you believe and have been baptized. So that's chapter 6. That's how you got into Christ. Chapter 7, now that you're in Christ, everything is wonderful, right? <coughs> Survey says, no. Uh, it's very tough. It's tougher now than it ever was. And you fight against your flesh, the spirit against flesh, flesh against spirit, I love what Paul says over in Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit lusts against the flesh. Here's that constant struggle going on inside me. The Apostle Paul says, I am sold as a slave to sin. He's talking about his flesh nature. No matter what I do, I still fail. I go forward and I fall backwards. Oh, wretched man that I am, chapter 7 ends. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? You know, in the ancient world, when somebody committed murder, they would take the murderer, if they caught him, and tie him to the corpse of the victim. Imagine, face to face, torso to torso, arm to arm, leg to leg, facing the dead body that you just murdered, they would take you outside and throw you in the garbage and either leave you or stone you to death. Paul's saying we are face to face with our own dead flesh that was buried back there in baptism. And we are face to face with ourselves. Who will deliver me from this flesh? 
And chapter 8 begins by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, no condemnation. The law of the Spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. When I sin now, I don't die for it. I'm forgiven. This is the most incredible thing. This is why so many people don't believe. Because it's too good a deal. I mean, think about it. You sin and you're forgiven. The last half of the book, Therefore the Christian Life, I didn't go through 9 through 11. <coughs> we can do that another time if you want to, but 12 through 15. Chapter 12 is my relationship with God in the body, that is, in the church. Chapter 13 is my relationship with my country, my culture. I am to be obedient to the authorities. I'm not to cheat on my taxes. I'm not to speed. I'm not to run stop signs. I always try to stay within a few miles of the speed limit, so I've only gotten one ticket in the last 40 years. I was going too fast. And then chapter 14 and 15, up through 15, 14, is my relationship with you, Christian brother and sister, how to get along. I was hoping to get through 1 Corinthians tonight, but I can do that real quick. Tomorrow night. What questions you got? Any, if any. Yes. Yes. 